Have you ever noticed that when you read a movie, or read a movie, when you read a book, or you go see a movie, that you almost automatically identify with the hero, the good guy? Very rarely, if ever, does anyone identify with the bad guy, right? If you go and watch Batman, you don't think, well, I'm the penguin, right? If you go and, you know, you watch Superman, you don't think, I'm Lex Luthor. You think, I'm Superman, right? And we do this often with the characters that we, we, that we watch. And over the last decade or so, uh, superhero movies have been really big in our culture. And when you go watch one of these movies, you're not thinking, I'm the bad guy. We, we like superheroes that it's clear that they are the good guy so that we can identify with them. We don't mind a little bit of tension in the middle, a little bit of, of conflict, a little bit of you know, moral confusion in the middle, but we want by the end that to be solved so that we can leave the movie thinking, I'm Iron Man, right? That's what we want to do when we're leaving. I'm Captain America. And we usually do this when we're reading the Bible as well. Nobody ever reads David and Goliath and thinks, I'm Goliath, right? Nobody does that. Nobody reads the story of Israel leaving Egypt and thinks, I'm Pharaoh. And so when we come to the New Testament and the stories about Jesus, we don't read them and think, I'm a Pharisee. We won't go so far as to say, I'm Jesus, because that might, you know, that might be a category of its own, but we're at least on his side, and we would definitely never identify with a Pharisee, so maybe when we come to a verse like John 9, 41, it should give us pause. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Now, Of course, none of us is going to claim that we are blind. But Jesus' warning should cause us to pause and ask if our protest against the very thought that maybe we're not the superhero in the story, that maybe there are parts of our lives that are antagonistic to Jesus, maybe Jesus' words should serve as a warning that we may need Jesus to do a further work of opening our eyes. Since the beginning of the Gospel of John, we've heard that Jesus is the light of the world. Last week, we heard his claim that he's the light of the world and that whoever believes in him will have the light of life. And today, we get an illustration of that statement and a kind of a fantastic wrap-up to Jesus' ministry at the Feast of Booths that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. John reports how masterfully Jesus combined the imagery of light and of water presented at this feast to reveal something further about himself and what it means to believe in him. He has come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. But if you don't think you are blind and you reject the offer that he gives, what hope remains for you? This is a warning then. Don't be blinded by the light Christ offers. Don't be blinded by the light. And I want to share three warnings that John chapter 9 brings to us about how to avoid being blinded and instead receive the kind of healing that Jesus came to give. Let's start by reading the first seven verses that report this miracle that Jesus did in John 9, 1 through 7. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he has been born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man, 
that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. As you might be able to imagine, blindness was a big problem in antiquity. They did not have the medical technology that we have, but neither did they have the sanitary conditions. So imagine that you rub your eye or you scratch your eyeball and you get an infection and suddenly you're in trouble because there's no antibiotic to fix what you've just done. And so you could end up with limited impaired vision or with blindness. And there was no Americans with Disabilities Act. There was no social safety net. And so usually what happened to a blind person because they could not work was that they fell to the lowest rung of society and they automatically became a beggar. And the theology of the time was largely that sickness and suffering were the direct result of some personal sin. That is, if you were suffering, it was because you had done something sinful. Now, there is some truth to that to some degree. We believe that suffering is the result of sin, but not that all suffering is the direct result of some personal sin. We believe that, that suffering entered the world because humanity fell away from God, but not that every time you sin, there's some direct consequence that can be seen immediately in your life, or that every sickness is the direct consequence of some sin. However, many first century Jews believed that disease or sickness was the result of a particular sin that a person had committed. And this made an interesting theological question when someone was born with a disease or a disability, like the man who was born blind. Because in that case, how, how could he have sinned? Who could have sinned? And so they asked him, the, the disciples, probably learning this theology from the Pharisees, who had sinned? Had his parents sinned and their guilt been passed on to the, to the child? Or, as some believed at the time, can babies sin in the womb before they're even born, as some rabbis taught? And so what, what are they to make of this? Who's, whose fault is this man's sin? So they ask Jesus an interesting theological question, or so they think. And they bring this conundrum up to Jesus because he's their rabbi. They're following him. And I'm so grateful for Jesus' answer. Of course, there are times when our sin does have direct and observable consequences in our lives. And Jesus was not saying that God doesn't ever punish particular sins. The Bible describes a few such instances, like Ananias and Sapphira, or when Herod received the praise that he was a god and didn't correct it, and he fell ill and was eaten by worms. But we shouldn't think that we can always judge a person based on their circumstances. In fact, we shouldn't ever start with that assumption, that because someone is suffering, they must be sinful. I remember when my cousin and friend suddenly died in his sleep in his early 20s, and someone implied to my uncle and aunt that he died because they hadn't prayed enough. A laughable accusation if you knew my aunt and uncle. Maybe you've experienced similar accusations in your life because of some sickness or injury or weakness, or maybe worse, 
Perhaps you have racked your own brain trying to determine what you did wrong to deserve what you're experiencing. Variously blaming yourself, blaming others, maybe even blaming your pain and your circumstance and your suffering on God. And what a privilege it is for me to tell you today that you can be free from that burden. Listen to the words of Jesus. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What the disciples were doing was looking for answers to their questions so that they could lay blame. They probably learned this from the Pharisees, as we'll see in a moment, but Jesus wasn't looking to lay blame. He was looking for God's glory. Some people read this statement as saying that God caused the man's blindness so that Jesus could be glorified, but it's not necessary to understand it that way. In fact, multiple Bible teachers point out that the Greek grammar can also read this way. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, period, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. To put it simply, you don't have to think that God caused your pain in order for God to be glorified through your pain. What are the works that Jesus was talking about? They were signs that would point people to him as savior and that gave them opportunity to believe in him. And we need to see that Jesus was speaking about a very specific situation here. The fact that he healed this man to display the works of God does not necessarily mean that he will heal you to display the works of God. Jesus goes on to say that he and the disciples needed to do the works of God as long as it was day. That is, as long as he was present in the world. That's the context he sets up for his statement. Jesus certainly cared about the individual blind man and what he was about to do for him and the miracle. He knew what it would mean for this man. But from John's perspective, the miracle is more about who Jesus is than just about the individual that was healed. And what I'm saying is that you can't read this miracle story and assume that your story will turn out exactly the same way. It doesn't mean that Jesus will heal everyone. He doesn't. We can see that. That's not to say we shouldn't ask, but he doesn't always heal. So what do we do with that? That doesn't mean that we can't trust Jesus to do his work in our weakness, does it? Sometimes that means he'll heal people. He works in our weakness and he heals our weakness. Sometimes he won't. Consider 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9, where the Apostle Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to what he says now. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Many surmise that this thorn in Paul's flesh may have been indeed a problem with Paul's physical eyes. Whether it was that or it was something else, Paul asked three times that God would heal him, that God would remove this thorn from Paul's flesh, and God refused. But God did not refuse to work through Paul. In fact, his work was magnified by Paul's weaknesses. 
Can you boast in your weakness knowing that God will be glorified through it? That's not a natural reaction to weakness, is it? That kind of reaction to weakness only occurs when we trust Jesus. Usually, it's the successful who boast, isn't it? It's the guy who's dunking or the guy who just scored the touchdown that beats his chest and shouts while the guy laying on the floor, he doesn't beat his chest and boast in his weakness. He just got dunked on. He just got scored on. The way the world sets these things up is it is the powerful and the successful who boast. But Jesus points us in this story in the direction of a kingdom truth, the kingdom of God truth, that through his words about this blind man, It's the guy who life has dunked on, that life has beat up and knocked down, who the world despises, who looks like a nobody because of sickness or disease, who doesn't have what it takes that can boast in Christ because in the kingdom of God, things are not always as they appear. And if you need evidence of this, then I will point you to the cross of Jesus Christ. People often ask, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And there are many reasons for this, but certainly one of the reasons was to demonstrate in the most plain way possible through the punishment that was considered the worst at the time and also the most shameful and displayed weakness and poverty in a way that no other punishment did. Surely what Jesus did on the cross, he did purposefully to demonstrate that God works through weakness. That God has redeemed the weak and the broken and the despised things of the world. And so I ask you again, can you boast in your weakness? Can you recognize that God's work is not hindered by your weakness? Can you offer him your pain and your insecurity over it all, your anger and your pride? And can you just trust him with your weakness? Look at how Jesus healed this man. He made mud or as other translations put it, clay. He put it on his eyes and then he sent him to Siloam to go wash it off. If you remember, Siloam was the pool where the spring of Gihon flowed. And on that feast day, the Feast of Booths, they would carry the golden pitcher They would take it down to the Gihon spring and they would dip it out. So this is the same water that they used to dip out. They pour on the altar and Jesus said, that he was the living water. That's where he sends this man to go wash this off. Now, why did Jesus heal him this way? I don't know that I can say for certain. It probably has something to do with Jesus intentionally trying to provoke the Pharisees to expose their sin, as we're gonna see in just a moment. Perhaps another reason has to do with the imagery of the mud or the clay that gets repeated several times throughout this chapter as the man tells and then retells his story over and over again. The word could mean mud, certainly, but the only other time this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in Romans 9 where it refers to potter's clay. And when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, this was the word used in Isaiah 29:16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And Isaiah 45, 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. And Isaiah 64, 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the 
clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Could it be that one reason Jesus made clay and put it on this man's eyes in order to heal him was to say to him and to every person to whom he retold his story from then until the end of his life that a life submitted to God even in weakness, especially in weakness, still can display the works of God and glorify the Son whom he sent. A life submitted, not trying to figure out whose fault this is, but knowing that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I think it certainly was. I think every time the blind man retold the story of Jesus making clay and putting it on his eyes, it was a testimony that God redeems lives out of their weakness. No, he doesn't always do it the same way. We can look around the world and look around our, the room and say, we know God doesn't always do it the same way. It's not always that he removes the weakness. He doesn't always heal as we saw with the Apostle Paul. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are assured that things are not always as they appear and that weakness is no hindrance to the works of God and to the glory of God. And how glad I am for this. I'm sure that like me, you can relate that there are weaknesses in your life. There are things that you wish were different. I know that there, how many times I've asked God to remove my weaknesses. God, you called me to be a pastor, and I'm an introvert. I don't know what to say to people. They think I'm wise because I don't talk that much. It's really just that my brain's spinning trying to think of what to say next, and I'm not coming up with anything. Would you just take that away so that I can be more useful to you, God? But his grace is sufficient, and his power is made perfect in weakness. I don't know how many times I've prepared a message, and I thought, oh boy, this is a good one. And it just, I don't know, it was okay. And how many times I've come to preach and thought, God, you know, there's a lot that I wish was different about this, and I, I've racked my brain. I don't know how to put it any more clearly. I don't think it's going to land. I don't know that it's going to do any good. And somehow, somebody or multiple people will come and say, oh, that, that, was, that really touched me and ministered to me in a very specific way. And I'll say, no, don't, you don't have to clap for me. I'll say, praise the Lord. And they'll think I'm being modest. I'm not being modest. I'm just surprised. Because I think I... I didn't do anything. I thought it was a dud when I got up to preach it. God's grace, these are, these are light examples. Your situation may be much worse. Maybe it's a sickness or a disease and you feel weak and you feel worthless and you feel despised in the eyes of the world. Maybe it's the pain or a broken relationship of loss and you think this has ruined me and I don't know how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna go on. Maybe it's the scars from your past and you think I, I can't have a normal relationship now because I'm, I'm too beat up and broken from the past. But I wanna tell you something. There is a God who bends down and makes clay and heals people. Primarily he does it by bringing us out of the darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, his son, spiritually. He brings us into a place where we recognize that there is a truth that the, the chest pounders and yellers who say, I'm him, will never understand. They won't get it. They can't get it. They think they see, but they're blind. And only those who are able to say, God, I'm weak. I'm a wretch. I'm pitiable. I'm poor. And I'm blind. 
but you redeemed me by the cross. And you've made something out of weakness. And Jesus looks at his disciples when they ask who sinned, and he said, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must do those works while it is still day. And God is still working in that way. Will you trust your weakness to him? Will you trust your weakness to him when you say, you're the potter, I'm the clay? The story then turns from the miracle itself to the testimony of the former blind man as he tells his neighbors and then the Pharisees are trying to figure out what had happened and what this all meant about Jesus. And you'll need to read these verses for yourself. I encourage you to do that. I'm gonna summarize them and point out some highlights. The Pharisees were kind of the common people's religious leaders. They, they didn't have access, the common people didn't have access to the priests, and some of them didn't really respect the priest's character anyway. And so it was only natural for them that when they had a religious question, they would go to the Pharisees to help interpret what had happened. So they take the man to the Pharisees to try to figure out. They're not being mean. They're not trying to, trying to put him in a bad situation. They're just trying to figure out, what do, we, what do we do with this? What does this mean? And then obviously, the man had been healed, but the, the people wanted to know what that said about Jesus, what they should do now. So they take him to the Pharisees and they ask. They ask the man, the Pharisees ask the man to repeat the story which he does for them. And then they began debating what this all means about Jesus. There was a tradition they had added to the Old Testament law which said that you couldn't need, probably intending to mean kneading dough on the Sabbath, and it appears that some of them thought that Jesus, by spitting in the, mud, in the dirt and making mud and kneading it into clay, that he had broken this law. And so he was a sinner in their eyes. Others thought, well, how could a sinner do such a powerful work, perform such a sign? And so they asked the formerly blind man what he thinks about Jesus. And he said, Jesus is a prophet. But the doubts caused by presuppositions and their assumptions and their fears that the Pharisees held, they continued to linger and so they questioned whether the man had actually been blind. And they were only convinced that he was blind from birth when they were able to locate his parents and they confirmed that indeed he was born blind. Now, these aren't exactly the sort of loving, supportive parents that you might hope for. Listen to what happened next. It says in verses 18 to 23, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now this wasn't like, you know, uh, you get kicked out of church and you can go find like 50 others. To, this was like you're out of the religious community, which means you're, you're cut off probably from most social interaction and community altogether. Okay? So therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So you've got the obstinance and the pride of the Pharisees. You've got the fear of the formerly blind man's parents. But look what happens with the blind man next. The Pharisees have all the evidence. 
that Jesus actually healed this man, but they still think Jesus is a sinner. They bring the blind man back to question him, and they continue to grill him, trying to find some scrap of evidence that they can use to discredit Jesus. And when asked to tell them what happened one more time, the formerly, bl- uh, the formerly blind man answered them and said, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Notice that everyone else is trying to find fault with Jesus or distance themselves for fear of the Pharisees, but the formerly blind man isn't afraid. He's a bit sassy, in fact. He's moving closer to Jesus. He hasn't even met Jesus with, with, while his eyes are open. He hasn't seen Jesus with his physical eyes because it doesn't, when he got back from the pool of Siloam, Jesus was no longer where he was before. So he has never seen Jesus. He doesn't know what, the, what Jesus looks like, but he's moving closer. He's a disciple. And his sassy response made the Pharisees angry. They said that they followed Moses and they knew God had spoken to Moses, but they didn't even know where Jesus came from. But the formerly blind man was not deterred by the reviling and he answered in verses 30 to 34, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he's using the Pharisees' own logic and their own teachings against them now. If anyone uh, does, that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, Again, they can't get away from their theology. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And oh, there it is, isn't it? The real problem wasn't that all their questions couldn't be answered, or there wasn't enough evidence, but that they were so full of themselves that they couldn't see anything else. They were so convinced of their own correctness, their own rightness, so much wanted to be right and to be esteemed that they couldn't see the light that was blazing before them. They were talking to a man who was healed of blindness, for goodness sake. What a contrast the formerly blind man is to his own parents and to the Pharisees. Pride and fear blind people to the light of Jesus Christ. But this blind man was not afraid of the Pharisees or of their pride. He's an example of a true disciple. While others were distancing themselves by by their fear and their pride, the formerly blind man was drawing near to Jesus. He's standing with Jesus. Let's put it this way. Stop trying to keep up appearances. Our attempts to preserve ourselves, which are often manifested as fear and as pride, keep us from Jesus. They keep us from the simple, sincere faith that is required to just follow Jesus, to do what he does, to learn what he wants in our lives, and and to follow him in in what it is. The light will always offend darkness. People will continue to express fear to cross the rulers of the darkness, to make them angry. But when you see the evidence of Jesus right before you, Don't be afraid to stand with him and don't let your pride rise up to keep you from him. No, you may not have been healed of blindness literally and perhaps you haven't seen someone who has been but this passage isn't only about physical healing. In fact, you could argue, I think justifiably, that it's not even primarily about physical healing. 
The experience of the blind man is a metaphor for new birth. Just like Amazing Grace says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You were once blind by your sin and separation from God, but you have been saved. So don't stop drawing near to Jesus because you get comfortable in your own achievements or your ways of thinking or because you're afraid of what others will do or say. Don't forget the simple, sincere faith of having the eyes of your heart opened by Christ after having lived in darkness for so long. Don't forget the moment when Jesus walked into your life and he took broken clay and he made it whole again and he opened the eyes of your heart to see the truth of the saving love and power of God. And don't stop serving God in that simple, sincere faith. Should you shrink back from following Christ after he healed you like that? Should you be afraid to simply and sincerely tell others what he has done for you? Like this formerly blind man who says, look, you might have a lot of questions and you can wrangle over your words all day long, but I know one thing, I was blind, but now I see. And even if that's not your physical eyes, surely you can say through the miracle of your own salvation, that a similar thing has taken place inside your life. That once I was blind and separated from God, but now I see, and that is your testimony. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are the blind man that now sees. Don't grow so sophisticated in your faith that you stop following him. Don't grow so fearful of others that you try to put distance between yourself and Jesus. Yes, people are going to demand all kinds of proof, just like the Pharisees. Evidence that you'd never be able to offer them. Evidence that you can't come up with because it would be impossible. They don't want you to be able to offer the evidence. They want to stay in their darkness. But don't let that stop you from sincerely following the light of Jesus Christ. They're going to doubt and ask questions. That's fine. But don't let the hardness of heart from people who walk in darkness convince you to act like you too are jaded and walk in the darkness. You were blind in your sin and rebellion against God, but now you see that is not something to hide. It is something to celebrate. You once were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. Don't try to keep up appearances. Sincerely follow Jesus and sincerely tell others that he opened your eyes. The brilliance of Jesus' light opens the eyes of those who trust him but blinds the eyes of those who are filled with fear and pride. Don't be blinded by the light. Allow the light of Jesus Christ to heal you. There's one more warning this passage gives about responding to the light. Read the end of the passage with me. It's John 9, 35 to 41. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So just like his parents were afraid they were going to get cast out of the synagogue, the blind man, he gets kicked out. So Jesus hears he got cast out, and having found him, remember, the blind man hasn't seen him yet. So he might recognize his voice, but he hasn't seen Jesus yet. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Isn't that a great thing to say to a guy who was formerly blind? You have seen him. That's awesome. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, 
For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Here's the last warning. Don't lie to yourself. The healing of the blind man is a metaphor for spiritual life. The blind man knew that he was blind. There was no denying that. There was no hiding from that or getting away from it. But the trouble with the Pharisees was that even though they were spiritually blind, they didn't know it. And they claimed they could see. And that isn't just a problem for the Pharisees. Many people who are blind claim they can see. Today, people don't do like the Pharisees. They don't look to the law of Moses like the Pharisees did in order to validate their sight. But they do look to all kinds of things other than Jesus, don't they? Many will look to science and think that modern explanations and medicine negate the need for God. We think that science can explain a lot. Medicine can do a lot. We are not deniers of those things. But we also know they don't explain everything. And they certainly don't negate the need for God. And they, so people get stuck in a sinful existence in which they think they've got the world pegged, figured out, and under control. And yet they can't even explain the most basic things like morality, justice, and peace, let alone issues of ultimate meaning and purpose. There are many people who claim to have a vague spirituality. And they'll say that they don't need a church. They don't need organized religion. They don't even need Jesus. They're, they just have spirituality. They're spiritual people. But this is just another form of what the Pharisees were doing. They were using religion to keep the true light at bay. And that's what people do today with their spirituality. They're using their man-made religion to keep the true light of Jesus at bay so they can continue to walk in their own darkness and don't have to feel like they've been exposed to the light of the God who created them and loves them and sent Jesus as the Savior and the only means of salvation. And what about, what about Christians? Is it possible that we sometimes lie to ourselves about our own spiritual state and our continuing need for Jesus? It is. Just look at what John later recorded Jesus saying through a vision to the church in a city called Laodicea. For you say, remember he's writing this to a church. Jesus is speaking this to the church. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the biggest dangers regarding blindness is claiming that we can see when we can't. And the danger for Christian hypocrites that may be even greater, a greater danger than for the Pharisees is that they tell themselves they're following Jesus because they use his name. When they call themselves Christian, 
they are saying, I do see. When they sing the songs or pray before a meal, they are saying, Christ has opened my eyes, but their eyes are glassed over with cataracts. Where's repentance? Where's the recognition that you are a wretch in need of redemption? Where's the surrender that's ongoing and leads to discipleship and being more like Jesus? Where is the willing heart that kneels before Christ to worship him as Lord as the blind man did? Where is your desire to do God's will? Where is the surrender of pride and worldliness? Where is your desire to to do what, what Jesus has instructed us so that his works and his love might be made manifest to the world? I think Proverbs 26, 12 sums this up well. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Perhaps a life of chasing your own dreams and your own desires, a life of comfort has you stuck and you're no longer living surrendered to Jesus and following him where he leads. But you lie to yourself and you say, no, I see Maybe there's some sin you're clinging to and and you won't confess it because you don't want it to be exposed to the light. You say, it's no big deal. It won't hurt me. I won't let it control me. It doesn't hurt anybody else. And you don't realize that it already does. And it's already separating you from the light. And so you remain in your blindness because you claim you can see. But just as he stood before the Pharisees to convict them, And then with the hope that they would repent and draw them, he stands at the door and he knocks today. Do you hear him? Will you open the door to him past your pride, past your fear, past your weakness? Don't lie to yourself. Let the light of Christ reveal and heal you today. The judgment Jesus brought into the world was not that he came to condemn, but that he came as true light And those who walked in darkness hid from him. They were wise in their own eyes. They were blind, but they thought they could see. Jesus didn't come to a world filled with people who were all aware of their own need and just begging that the light would shine on them. That's not what John describes. It says he came into a dark world. And most of that darkness didn't want anything to do with the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus entered, and the judgment he brought was not that he came because he wanted to condemn men and women. The judgment he brought was that he shined in the darkness, and if the darkness was going to flee from from him, what good could the light do for them? And so they were judged, not because Christ wanted it that way, but because they wanted it that way. They wanted to get away from the light And that hasn't changed. That's still how people respond. And so I want to ask you with all sincerity and directness today, are you stuck in your sin? Have you been trying to convince yourself that you see while you're groping through life in the darkness, trying to make sense of life on your own terms? That will never work. God designed you to know him and to be in a relationship with him. And as long as you refuse to acknowledge that you need him, as long as you reject his offer of salvation through Jesus, you will continue to be blind. But if you will believe that Jesus died for you, 
that God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if you will confess that he is Lord, and if, like this formerly blind man, you'll come and you'll kneel before him. You'll worship him. You'll recognize that he's the reason and the purpose of life, that he's the one worth following, that he makes life what it is. This is how John put it, that he is the light of life. What does that mean? It means that he's the one who shows you what life really is. That it's not just a shot in the dark. That life is not like a a, a coin dropped in a slot machine and you're just kind of hoping for the best. That life isn't just about, you know, you got lucky and you were born in America. Too bad for all those other people. That's not what life is. Life has purpose because God made you with purpose and because he is creator and he is Lord of life and because he is the light of life. And if you've not yet opened your eyes to that light, here's some news for you. You can't. But Jesus can open your eyes. And if today you hear his voice, if you hear him calling to you, if you hear the voice saying, I'm going to make some mud and I'm going to rub it on on your eyes, and if you'll go to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Why does Jesus send him there? Because Jesus is the one sent from God. And by this very act, this man is realizing and recognizing, I'm trusting Jesus, the one sent from God. I can't open my own eyes. The water didn't open the blind man's eyes. The mud didn't open his eyes. Not even his own obedience opened his eyes. Jesus opened his eyes when the man would receive what Jesus came to give, and he'll do the same for you. He'll open the blind eyes of your spirit, the way that you push back against God, the darkness of your life. He will open your eyes if you'll stop pushing back and you'll let him heal you. That's called salvation. And it doesn't happen because you do anything. It happens because Jesus has done something for you. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Today, I want you to know and understand that Jesus died for your sin and God raised him from the dead to give you new life. And he loves you. He loves you enough to confront your blindness. How unloving would it be of Jesus if he had sight for you, but he left you in your darkness? And so he does things like expose your darkness and open you up. And you might feel it as shame. You might feel it as condemnation. You might feel it as fear. You might feel it as guilt. But that's not Jesus. That's your own pride. That's your own fear. Jesus has come not to condemn. He's come to save if you will trust him. And today, if you don't have a relationship with God by faith in Jesus, I want to ask you if you will, in all sincerity, simply trust Jesus. Will you put your hope in him? Will you surrender your life to him will you say Jesus my life is broken but I believe you're the one who opens the eyes of the blind I believe you're the one who brings light in the darkness I believe you're the light of life I believe God raised you from the dead and I want to follow you if that's you you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus not an active one not one that you you prayed a prayer 20 years ago but you've never followed Jesus I'm not talking about that I'm talking about do you have a relationship with Jesus in which you're following the light of Christ if you don't and today you want to begin that I'm going to ask you to do something very simple simple but profound it's just this I want to pray with you in order to do that would you just lift up your hands so that I can see who you are and you can acknowledge Christ and we can pray together is anybody like that you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to you want to make that relationship today you want to receive that free gift today is there anybody like that thank you I'm going to pray my words can't save you any more than mud or water open the eyes of the blind, but Jesus can. He opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. And today I'm gonna pray that he will do that in your life. And as I pray, would you make this prayer yours? You confess, you believe in Jesus. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you.
so much for the light that you've shown in the darkness of this world. And I thank you that today you've shown your light into the hearts and lives of some people and that they have responded. I thank you, Lord, that you worked past their pride, that you confronted their, their, their own fears. And I thank you, Jesus, that right now you're working in them to make them new. Today, Jesus, as they come to you and they confess their sin and as they believe in you for new light and new life, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to just come and surrender with sincerity. And I pray, Lord, that from today forward, as they've put their trust in you, believe that you died and that you rose again, and they're beginning to walk in relationship with you, I pray that you'd help them to draw nearer and nearer the light of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd not allow pride or fear to get in the way again, but that you'd help them with all sincerity to simply come worship and follow Jesus. We thank you for them today. Thank you for how they've responded. And I pray, God, that today you'd open the eyes of their soul, of their spirit to you, that you would change them, that they would be born again, that they were blind, but now they see. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask those of you who are believers to stand with me, and we're going to close in this way. I'm going to pray. but. There's a danger for us as Christians as well that we will lie to ourselves about our spiritual state because we prefer comfort, we prefer pride over the exposure the light brings to our weakness and to our sin. But those Jesus loves, the scripture says, he disciplines so that we can follow him more closely. And I wanna ask you to respond in one of three ways. And you can do this by, uh, our prayer partners will be available after service if you wanna pray with them. But even if you go home this afternoon, I want to ask you to to consider this passage of Scripture and respond before God in one of three ways, or maybe multiple ways, but these are the ways. First, that you wouldn't assume you're the hero in this story, but you'd allow the Holy Spirit to gently nudge you, to gently teach you if there are places in your life where you are blind, if you're more like a Pharisee, are there things you're hiding from God? Is there pride that keeps you from full surrender and following Jesus? Let him work in your life that way. Second, ask the Lord to help you witness through your weakness. Just like the blind man did. Offer your weaknesses to God. You say to him, you're the potter. I am the clay. Ask him to help you boast in your weakness and be bold for him that he might be glorified through you. And finally, rejoice. The miracle that Jesus did is an image for us of what he does in the lives of believers who trust him. He opens our blind eyes. And what we shouldn't do is just get caught up in the introspection of where have I gone wrong? But we ought also to rejoice. God has opened the eyes of this blind man. God has opened the eyes of this blind person. Now I see, I once was blind, But now I see rejoice in what God has done for you. Glory in it. Praise him for it. Thank him for it. Remember that salvation that you have is not a formula where you come to church on Sunday. It is the fact that you were blind and lost in darkness, but God has opened your eyes and you now see Jesus and you have access to him. Rejoice in that. Would you respond in one of those three ways? I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come as I close us in prayer. If you'd like to respond with one of them when the service is over, you are certainly welcome to do that. If you raised your hand to give your life to Christ today, please come and pray with one of them. They would love to pray for you. Um, Otherwise, I'm gonna pray for you and then we'll go in God's grace and peace. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much 
that you open the eyes of the blind. Thank you, Jesus, that when you pass by people who are born blind, that we were born in darkness and we're taught darkness and we grow up in the midst of it, that you see us, you stop and you take what is weak and you, the potter, form it into what you want it to be and you open the eyes of the blind. I thank you, Jesus, for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to grow jaded, not to grow arrogant, not to grow prideful and think that we see when we don't. Help us, Lord, to remain with hearts of surrender before you that say, just as the blind man, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? That sincerely just wanna follow Jesus, that sincerely kneel and worship him, that are eager for your continued work in our lives. Lord, help us, help us not to lie to ourselves, not to grow arrogant. Lord, help us to remain moldable in your hands. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. We believe and we rejoice that we now see. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. We will see you again on Wednesday. Don't forget, if you haven't already, to sign up for a connect group on your way out. Go in God's grace and in his peace.